you to turn with me now in the Word of God to Revelation chapter 1. Just that I might uh, waylay any fears and concerns you have, it is not my intention at this point to preach through the whole book. It is my intention to preach through the first three chapters, more specifically the letters to the seven churches. And so I'm going to introduce those letters this morning by preaching uh, from Revelation chapter 1. So I'm going to ask you to stand now at this time for the reading of God's holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him. Even those who pierced Him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty, I, John, your brother, and fellow partaker in the tribulation and the kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum and Thyatira, to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. We had been made to glow in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, Do not be afraid. 
I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, the things which take place after these things. As for the mysteries of the seven stars you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The great Dutch New Testament commentator, Dr. William Hendrickson, succinctly summarizes the main idea of the book of Revelation when he writes, The purpose of the book of Revelation is to comfort the militant church in its struggle against the forces of evil. I love this statement because of its concision. If there is any book in Scripture that the believer is entitled to be perplexed at, it's It's the book of Revelation. I'm reminded this morning as I take up preaching on at least a portion of it uh, that John Calvin never preached a sermon on this book. There are mysterious images and mysterious details in this panoramic presentation of the whole of human history from Christ's ascension until His bodily return and those very details will stump the most skillful interpreters. And so I really appreciate this statement of Hendrickson about the purpose of the trees because it's like a knife which slices straight through the forest and gets us to focus on the trees. And he says the trees, not the forest. The trees is that the purpose of this book is to console. That's a fitting message because after all, as we're going to see in a moment, the author of this book, the human author, the Apostle John, is in prison for the gospel. The very churches whom he writes to, he will let her testify about that they have endured seasons of persecution. Indeed, as the Apostle Paul said they would, and all believers would, as he says in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who seek to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. And so at the heart of the message of comfort to the church, then and even today, is this. Things aren't what they seem. Don't you appreciate that message? Things aren't what they seem. Though the the beast rises out of the abyss and he makes war with the saints and he even apparently seems to overcome them, the message of the book of Revelation is things aren't what they seem. And the reason... That message of comfort doesn't land, as it were, on deaf ears. is because the central image, which is the anchor of the hope and the comfort of the book of Revelation, is Christ. Christ and His glory 
reigning in heaven above. Christ the victor, the one who conquers death and Hades and the dragon and the beast and the false prophet and the men who worship the beast. He is the victor and there's no more powerful, moving, or vivid image of Christ than the one which is presented in Revelation 19 and even has echoes of right here in our text in Revelation chapter 1 is of Christ where John presents him to us as the, as the white horse rider, the one whose name is faithful and true, who wages war, whose eyes are a flame of fire, whose head is crowned with diadem, whose robe is dipped in blood, and out of his mouth comes a sharp sword that he may strike down the nations and rule them with a rod of iron while he treads out the fierce winepress of the wrath of God Almighty, who is declared to be the King of kings and Lord of lords. Don't miss the trees for the forest. The forest is dark and full of perplexing images, but the trees are plain enough to make out hope, consolation. Christ is king, and he is conquering. He is ruling, and he will prevail. He will be victorious in spite of how things seem. Comfort. But my message this morning isn't about that. I wanted to set that up because just as a double-edged sword, when it swings one way, strikes with a sharp edge, so when it swings the other way, has a different sort of piercing and penetrating a sharpness to it. And so this two-edged sword of the message of the book of Revelation about the glorious victorious, reigning Christ is number one, a message of comfort for the church, but also a message of confrontation. And that's where we begin to enter into introducing our text this morning and the subsequent messages which we wish to preach from the seven letters. Because here in Revelation chapter 1, the imagery of Jesus Christ is, yes, assuring it is consoling. It presents Christ and His mysterious and glorious and transcendent power. But at the same time, as you read towards the end of the text, and you read in verse 17, that when John says he saw Him, he fell at His feet like a dead man. We begin to see the entry point to our preparation for thinking through these early chapters and messages to the seven churches is that this image of the glorious Christ, yes, it comforts, but it confronts. Especially as we see, as John testifies, this glorious Christ is standing right in the middle of the lampstands which are His church. You see, in the presence of the glorious Christ walking in the midst of His church is a message of consolation to us that we are in Christ and He is with us and He is our protector and our preserver. But it also tells a second message that He is the Lord and King of His church. And as such, 
He calls his church to repent and to cultivate devotion to Jesus Christ. That's the image of Christ we're going to be thinking about this morning as we make preparation for our study of these seven letters. And I'm just going to introduce uh, the book of Revelation ascends with an I to the message contained in the seven letters this morning. And there's four things I want us to see together. The author, the recipients, the revelation, and the revealer. Author, recipients, revelation, and revealer. And we begin now with the author. And there's just a few things we want to say here. And the first thing that we want to say when we think of the author is the identity. Now, it seemed very clear to us that John is indeed the author of the book of Revelation because we see it in verse 1, his bondservant John. We see it in verse 4, John to the seven churches. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. It would seem quite plain to us that the author of the book of Revelation is John. But as soon as you say that, there would be some who would say, well, which John? Which John? And the reason is because there have been various Johns who have been proposed as the author of the book of Revelation. There are those, and I would say this is the high water mark of, of historical, accurate interpretation of the text, that it is John, the brother of James, the son of Zebedee, who was that disciple whom Jesus loved. Then there are those who would say that it is John the Elder who lived in Ephesus on into the second century and had a role to play in the Ephesian churches. Others would say, and I think this is entirely out of bounds, but at least I mention it, is that it's some John who was writing under a pseudonym, a false name. Not really John at all, but for some reason thought it would be useful to call himself John to burnish his credentials and the authority of his work. And there are others who inexplicably would argue that John here is John the Baptist, who was murdered before Christ, <laughs> died on the cross. But I uh, think this morning, people of God, we can settle quite confidently on the position that the John in view here is the Apostle John, the brother of James, the son of Zebedee. And one reason why I would offer to you that this John is the right John is because virtually everyone in antiquity believed it. We have an explicit statement from Irenaeus, who is the... Bishop of Lyon in France, about 155, who explicitly testified to the fact that John was the author of this book. And guess what? He learned it from a, a man named Polycarp, who was a friend, who was also alive when John wrote this book, was in his middle 20s, was in Ephesus, and was a disciple of the Apostle John, and he said the Apostle John wrote it. And then there's the testimony of Justin. And from there, the Muratorian canon, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian of Carthage, Orin of Origin of Alexandria. And the list goes on and on from antiquity, even though there's a few who don't quite hold to Joanine authorship. But from the historical record, there is simply no good reason at all to reject 
John the Apostle as the author of this work. But if we just thought about it uh, from the, his, the internal indicators of this book, it would seem quite clear to us that the person in view here is indeed the Apostle John. As Hendrickson says, he simply calls himself John. Who in the world in the Ephesian church would have such name recognition? And not just the Ephesian church, but all of the churches within that region. Who would have such name recognition that nothing else was needed? When he wrote John, people immediately knew it was John. And of course, we know from the time of the writing of this book, John indeed was in Ephesus, and John indeed was pastoring this church well into his 90s. He is the author. What about his description? Well, you can see the beginning of the description here in verse 1, where he describes himself as a bondservant. And the word means doulos, and the word doulos means a slave. The word doulos means a slave. And we mean that in the strictest sense of the term, not a mere servant, but a person who was owned as property by someone else. To designate himself as a doulos is to say that he is owned in body and soul by his faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. If you drop down to verse 9, we learn here that he describes himself as brother. I, John, your brother. And by identifying himself as brother, he's indicating his gospel standing. That his spiritual association with the people of God is an association which is based upon a shared experience of grace. He says he's a fellow partaker, as you read on the rest of the statement, which means that he has the most intimate, shared relationship with them. And notice here the things that he shares with the churches. He shares with them tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance. And then finally we learn of him in verse 9, of his location that tells us something else about his description. He's a prisoner. He said, I was on the island called Patmos because of the word or the testimony about Christ. Here's the thing. There were no glossy brochures of Patmos in the ancient world with travel agents lining up trips to go there. Patmos was a gigantic rock pile in the middle of the ocean and everyone who was there was a criminal. And their task was to pick up a hammer and to bust rocks into pieces to provide the raw building materials for the Roman construction projects. Which means he's a prisoner. Now, one of the things that you will notice here is there isn't a hint of a claim to apostleship here. Even though John has the firmest and most certain and reliable apostolic credentials, but when he writes to the church, he doesn't highlight his, his apostolic credentials. He highlights the fact that he is the humble servant of Christ. 
and he is also the servant of the church, and that is indicated in his work. That's the third thing we see about him, is his work, and you can see his work in verse 2, who testified to the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. You see, John is referring to himself as the one who's serving Christ by serving his church. And by serving his church in that day, by writing down everything that he saw in obedience to the commandment of Christ, he's our servant too. Because without that service, without that being a careful, humble, simple scribe, we wouldn't have this great prophetic letter which is given for the hope and the comfort of the church. So the person who wrote this is the Apostle John. And second of all, now we think about the recipients. And I think it's important as we look into verse 1 here that John identifies the, ser- the servants or the recipients in spiritual terms. He said the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his bond servants. Notice here, that there is an overlap in terms of the word here, servants. Just as John is a bondservant, so John identifies the people and the members of the congregations there that are in Christ. They too are doulos. They are slaves. They are owned by Christ. It seems to me by indicating that John is telling you this morning that your fundamental spiritual identity is doulos. You are a slave. You are owned. You have been paid for with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The recipients clearly are the seven churches, as you can see from verse 4. John says the seven churches which are in Asia. And then if you're to drop down even further in our text this morning, we'll begin to see where those churches are beginning in verse 11, Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and to Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. And it's interesting if you were to plot these on a map and you begin where John does in the beginning of his description that Ephesus would have been on the southwestern end of Asia Minor, and you go up like this to the north and then to the east and, and down south, the cities as they are charted, because there's an opening in the bottom, looks like a horseshoe. And this symbolic presentation of the churches is one way to indicate that the letters that were written to the seven churches of that day were letters which are general in application to the church throughout all ages. So the very way Christ unfolds this to John and tells him to write this, he's making it very clear that this isn't an occasional letter to these particular churches with only a word for them, but the word that is contained here is a word for the church. Finally, he identifies them as the redeemed. I want you to notice the consolation of the way John addresses the seven churches here of Asia, which would be in modern Turkey. He says unto them, Grace to you and peace. John begins his message to the seven churches in such a way that he reinforces in their thinking that they are the redeemed of the people of God. He says unto them, grace. 
And grace is that term that makes every believer's heart sing. Because grace is the gift which is given to the sinner. It's, the, it's a gift that is given to those who are in a position of demerit. It is a gift given to those who do not deserve it. It is a grace that is rooted in the shedding of blood. He says unto them also that peace is theirs. And peace is one of those words sometimes we don't think about as much in terms of this great grace of the gospel, but it's very central to the heart of the gospel. And we know it is because the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, peace is at the center of the gospel and at the heart of our hope because what stands behind the image of peace is God is angry. This is usually what gets whitewashed out of this term. This is where secularism has had much to do with the Christian understanding of peace as some sort of bland and calm meditative state. That's not the peace of the Word of God. The peace of the Word of God is that God isn't angry with you. And the reality is the biblical testimony is that God was at enmity with us. This is not Hallmark Christianity. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. No, the reality is God is angry with you. God is your enemy. You're under the wrath and curse of God. You are subject to His judgment. And the only way out of that is the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ who made peace with God for us through the shed blood of His cross. So what does he speak here when he speaks these words of consolation to the churches to say to them, you're redeemed. Your hope is grounded in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. People of God, there's plenty that we will not understand about this book. So let's start by putting our hands on what we can understand this morning. This is God's message to you. That He is gracious to you. And He is at peace with you because of Christ. Do you know how many people don't have that? Do you know how many people lay upon a hospital bed not knowing will they live the rest of the day? They don't have any peace at all that stare up at you with empty eyes, fearful of what lay before them, who can't find any hope or consolation in friends and family gathered around their bed or medicines or medical equipment or doctor's orders. It's not you this morning. You have this great gift which John speaks of, which is given to the church, to those who believe in Jesus Christ. You have grace and peace, and the reason you have it is because God has bestowed it upon you. Notice the source of it all. It says it's from Him who is and who was and who is to come. 
and from the seven spirits before his throne. I don't think we have any difficulty identifying who this one is, who is and who was and who is to come. It's clearly a reference to God the Father. But, but the, the, the latter part of the clause is one that, that causes us uh, bewilderment, I guess you would say, because it says here that this source of this grace and this peace is from the seven spirits before His throne. And the only way to take this is in connection with the rest of the Word of God. Scripture nowhere teaches that there are seven different divine beings or spirits. There is one God in three persons, and so in the first part of the clause, we have reference to God the Father who is and who was and who is to come, and that is connected by the conjunction and to the seven spirits before His throne, which means then that this spirit here is... Fully, equally, eternally, God. And so why are seven spirits spoken of rather than the spirit? And the answer likely rests in the fact that John is speaking to the seven lampstands. And so the sevenfoldness of the spirit is designed to reference and to accent the fact that the Spirit of God is active within the church. In fact, we could say the grace uh, in terms of its moving cause comes through God the Father. Grace in terms of its merit comes through the work of Jesus Christ. And grace in our experience comes because of the Spirit of God. And so the reason for saying seven spirits is to make it clear that the Spirit of God, who Christ poured out on the day of Pentecost, is with His church. And because the Spirit of God is with His church, then Christ is with His church. So those are the recipients, and we move now to the revelation. And the thing that grabs our attention, first of all, when we think about the revelation is its occasion. Let's come back now to our text and notice here verse 9 and 10 what it says about the occasion. I join your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And I was on the spirit and the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. And so we begin now with the occasion. The occasion is obvious. We've already referenced here. John says he is on the island of Patmos because of the word. He is on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And what that tells us is that John has been in prison for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. John isn't in jail because he was protesting Caesar's rule. John isn't in jail because he's been engaging in some sort of nefarious criminal activity. John is in jail because he wouldn't back down from Caesar and deny Christ or shut his mouth about him. John is in Christ because he was faithful to the preaching 
of the gospel. And so here he sits on the Isle of Patmos, which is about 40 miles off the coast of Ephesus. And here he is in his old age, likely in his 90s. And he's been, he has been sentenced to hard labor. Instead of packing a Bible under his arm, he, he carries a hammer to a rock pile. But he says in the midst of that experience, it was on the Lord's day, he was in spirit. And whatever this means, it's likely some sort of a, a trance state. It's something supernatural. I, I, I think we need to try to understand it as, as something that defies uh, uh, space and, and time with all of its limitations. There's somehow in some way God by the Spirit drew him up into something that I don't know that, that we have words for. But it was on the Lord's Day, and I think that's interesting because what he's saying is that it was the first day of the week. Here he is at the end of the apostolic era, and he is acknowledging that this is what believers did, that they met on the Lord's Day for the worship of Christ. They weren't worshiping on the Sabbath day. They weren't worshiping on the seventh day. They were worshiping on the, the Lord's Day. The first day of the week, the day that Christ honored by rising from the dead on the very day in which Christ repeatedly returned and reappeared to his church on in between the days of his resurrection and his ascension. And so it was, as you can see from the book of Acts and 1 Corinthians and other places, that it seems to have been that the church regularly met for its worship on the Lord's Day. That is the first day of the week. And so perhaps he can even see across the bay to the city of Ephesus. And on the Lord's Day, he is in the Spirit seeking to not just hallow the day to the worship of the Lord, but also seeking to identify with his church as they met together as the people of God. And all of a sudden, the statement here is gripping. Because it says to us, I heard behind me the voice like that of the sound of the trumpet. And later on in verse 15, he says it was a voice that sounded like many waters. And the result was this vast vision that is recorded in the book of Revelation. And all of its 22 glorious and hundred chapters. And when did it happen? Well, there's two dates, and one doesn't have much to commend itself. That is somewhere in the mid-60s A.D., likely some say in the reign of Nero Caesar, but I just don't think there's anything to commend for that day. The argument is basically pinned on the idea that John doesn't mention the destruction of the temple. All that would mean to me is that the people he wrote to didn't have a temple-centric faith. This is in the 90s A.D. These are Gentiles largely. They know nothing of the temple in Jerusalem being at the center or heart of their faith. So it would be nothing. It would be meaningless for him to speak to them about that in this book. So I think we're on safe grounds to say that this was in the middle 90s, somewhere around 95 to 96. 
And that tells us something very important about the people he wrote to. It means they had time enough to mature in the Christian faith to degenerate. They had time enough to grow to degenerate spiritually. The sad story of the seven churches is that they are now about 40 years old. We know from the book of Acts that um, the Ephesian church was planted in the early part of the 50s. And we know again from Acts 19 that the apostle said that when he stayed there for those three years, the word of God spread like wildfire throughout the whole region where these churches would have been. So that he says, all heard the word of the Lord. All in Asia then. And so I think we could infer from that that the churches that are mentioned here, Smyrna and Pergamon, and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea, all of these churches were planted probably roughly right within that same time frame. And so that means then that they've had time to grow. They've had time to be a church. There's been time for the church to become an institution. And one of the distressing things about this is that when you read Revelation 2 and 3, it reads like a testimony of brokenness. The churches are riddled with spiritual apathy and moral compromise and, and broken relationships. Just like every church that grows old does. There is so much excitement when churches are planted. There's no traditions to follow. There's nobody standing outside under a shade tree talking quietly and muttering to themselves and their friends who've been members of the church for 70 years that things just aren't going like they used to in the good old days when certain things were done. No, in, in church plants, no one has a tradition. You just come together as a, as a bunch of believers and, and new converts seeking with all of the zeal of a new convert to raise up a church to the glory of Christ. But one of the sad things that happens is the zeal fades. The problems come. Apathy sets in. And people just start playing church. And before you know it, you got a congregation that feels like it's full of spiritually dead wood. I don't know if you've seen the pictures of where the fires have scorched in California. But one thing that's quite remarkable about it when you see them up close is that the dead, the dead trees don't burn. They're just there, lifeless. And everything around it looks like a nuclear wasteland. You see, when the church isn't pruned, when there isn't discipline, when there isn't spiritual growth and maturity, one thing that happens is churches become lifeless. 
they lose their savor. Remember, Jesus said that the disciples were to be salt. But instead of becoming salty, they can become insipid and tasteless. That's the condition of the church which John writes to, as we'll see in a moment, as we work through these letters over time. They were riddled with problems. And the way they got there is it took time for them to grow. Let's make sure we understand that as we work through these letters and start thinking about it for ourselves as a congregation. The nature of this revelation is so important to lay hold of at this point because what it is, is it's a divine revelation. This isn't John as a seasoned elderly pastor with time for reflection and contemplation on his hand, sort of writing out his pastoral last will and testament for the churches, speaking to them about things that they might do and think about and try to get better at. One thing that strikes you as you read the opening uh, verses of this book of Revelation is that the accent falls so profoundly and so heavily upon the divine nature of the word. The first letter just bursts, or the first verse just bursts with the language of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And let's not confuse that with how we use revelation in English. We all know that it's the word apocalypsis. And people always talk about the apocalypse. And they think it means some dramatic event. But apocalypsis doesn't mean drama. It means disclosure. It means a disclosure. And the disclosure here is of Jesus Christ. And you could take that to mean of Jesus Christ, meaning about Jesus Christ, or you could take it as from Jesus Christ. And surely this book is about Jesus Christ. He's the victor. He's the king. But clearly here, the sense of that prepositional phrase, of Jesus Christ, is to say, He is the source. This is Jesus Christ standing in the midst of His lampstands, the church. And he comes to them and says, I have a thing against you. And the assessment is not from a man. It's from Christ. Notice further it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bond servants, which tells us here that the revelation of Christ is mediated through Christ, and its source is God the Father. So this is a thoroughly divine assessment, a thoroughly divine revelation, and that is reinforced in what you read in verse 2, where it says John testified to the Word of God. He testified to the Word of God. So everything that is written in the book of the Revelation falls under the category of the Word of God. And then we see here in verse 10 that Jesus says to him, Write it in a book. Everything that you see on into verse 11, he says, you write it in a book. And so that tells us a divine written revelation. Because wherever you use this word writings in the New Testament, 
It is shorthand for canonical scripture. So John, the way he very writes, the terms he is using is underscoring and accenting that this is the word of God, the written, canonical, scriptural word of God for the church. And then finally, we know the nature of this word, that it is a prophetic word. A prophetic word. Look at verse 19. Jesus is addressing John saying, Therefore, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. You see, this book of Revelation is about history. It is a prophecy of history told beforehand. And that's something very important to think about when you think about how to interpret the book of Revelation. I am quite aware that it's full of images and symbols. And one false way that this book gets interpreted in the modern interpretive context is to see this book as full of nothing more than a set of ideals that are moral and spiritual in nature, not tethered to or grounded or tied to anything in actual experience or history. But that's not what this says. Jesus said, write what you have seen, which is the things which are and the things which will take place. It is history given beforehand in prophetic idiom the word of God says in Deuteronomy 29 29 that there are secret things it says the secret things of God belong to him but the things that are revealed belong to you and to your children the book of revelation is not the secret things of God that is very important to grasp hold of as you begin to approach this text and interpret it and apply it. It is not the secret things of God. It is the revealed will of God for His church. It's for you. And so that means when we seek to interpret this book, we are not trying to pry into what's hidden. We are simply trying to pry into the history which God prophetically unveiled to His church. It's meant for you then to enjoy, to read, to receive counsel from, wisdom from, and understanding from. So we've seen the author. We've seen the recipients. And now we see the revealer. And I know that our time is is short at this point, but I just want you to notice there are seven glories of Christ that are set forth here. And I want us to, to examine them, not so much to put each under a microscope and see it in, in, in fine grain and detail. The thing that I want to do is press home to us here this morning uh, the glory of the revealer because it is at the heart of the entry point to understand these seven letters to the church. Because what the glories of Christ confront us with is the authority of Jesus Christ over His church and His Lordship 
and his right to call us as his people to repentance. So let's just quickly go through these. Seven glories. First of all, Christ is glorious in being. How about church? Uh, verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Christ is glorious in being. Alpha and Omega, what does it mean? Well, as you know, that's the first and the last letter in the Greek alphabet. Surely that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying, I'm the first and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Likely it means that Jesus is thoroughly self-sufficient from A to Z or A to Omega, if you will. Another way you could take it is to say that Alpha is the beginning, highlighting His eternal nature, and Omega is Christ ruling from now until the end. You could take it that way too. But the thing that really grips us here is that Jesus identifies Himself as Almighty. The word there is pantocrator. It literally means the omnipotent one. The omnipotent one. The supreme one. And you see, why that's so important is because the Caesars, as you're well aware of the Roman cult of Caesars, they applied to themselves the title of autocrator. Means self-ruler. Well, Jesus stamps his name and his title at the, at the start of this book to make it very clear to the Caesars or anybody else in between during or after. You may be self-rule, but I am supreme rule. He is the almighty the omnipotent notice his position here. Verse 5, he's the faithful witness, which means everything he says is true and there's no deception in it. That he speaks nothing but the truth. He is the firstborn from the dead. And this is a glorious title because it's not just a title, it's a testimony that Christ is the firstborn from the dead. He is the first of the resurrection. And by calling himself the firstborn, it is a metaphor taken from the Old Testament, which means down payment, which means the first of the harvest has come in to ensure and symbolically portray that the whole of the harvest will come in. Which means then, as the firstborn of the resurrection, it means everyone who is in him will surely rise again. It's one of the most precious testimonies of this book. For anybody who looks the horror of death straight in the face, what could be better than to know Christ is the first one? Christ is glorious because he is the conqueror of that which we are terrified by. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth, a great image of confidence, which is a message to the beast, to the Caesars, to the tyrants, to the dictocrats in every age. 
to the Castro regime, to communist China, to Kim Jong-un, to the mullahs in Iran, to the tribal lords in Africa, to the President of the United States. Christ is the ruler. And this book makes it very clear to us that the hope of the believer and the hope of the church isn't a moral president. It's a righteous king, Jesus Christ. If you're feeling down today about politics, let your thoughts run to this statement. He is glorious in authority, the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is glorious in grace. Look at verse 5 and on into 6. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. He is glorious in grace. Just Think about this one statement here. Jesus Christ loves us. You know, we read in Scripture that God loves us, for God so loved the world. Oh, I love John 3, 16. But Jesus loves us. I wonder if John was reflecting upon one of the last things he heard from Christ and his humility before he went to the cross as they sat in the upper room. Jesus is a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. John, as he speaks to the church, says something very precious to everyone who is in Christ. Jesus loves you. And then it just gets better in the next phrase. He released us from sin through His blood. You know what that word release means? Wash. Wash. The verb is luo. It means to purify through washing. And what John testifies to here to us this morning is that Jesus Christ not only loves us, but He shows us His love for us as He washes us from our sin. He releases us from sin's condemnation. He releases us from sin's guilt. He releases us from sin's corruption. He releases us from sin's bondage. Christ is glorious in grace. Christ is glorious in authority. Look at verse 10. John speaks of the sound of of a trumpet. That was Christ's voice. Well, You can pick up on the accent of authority here when you realize that the trumpet is what God used to summon his people to assembly. The sound of the trumpet wasn't a musical serenade. It was symbolic of the authority of God calling his people to come unto him. Jesus is saying, I'm the trumpet voice. I'm the one that calls you into worship. When we read the call to worship on the Lord's Day, we are not just reading Scripture. We are reading Jesus Christ speak to us with the voice of His sovereign, authoritative trumpet. You hear because Christ called you. Don't miss church. You don't have the right to plug up your ears to the sound of the trumpet. 
glorious in appearance. And there's just simply no time to work through this. But let's just uh, pluck through this one by one. There's eight images here in uh, verses 12 through 16. But notice uh, quickly, Christ is clothed in a robe reaching to his feet. Notice again in verse 14, his hair on his head is as white as wool and white is a, is a symbol of purity and holiness. So the crown of his head, as it were, is covered in white to symbolize his perfect purity. His eyes are like a flame of fire. The image of blazing fire speaks to the, to the penetrating, piercing power of Christ's gaze. You can't hide any sins in your life. Even the sins you do in dark. Christ's feet are like burnished bronze that, glow, bronze that glows in the dark. And bronze is, is a symbol of, of strength. And being on the feet here, it indicates Christ's strength and power to trample underfoot His enemies. Verse 15, Christ's voice is like the sound of many waters. And the idea here is of ocean breakers. Have you ever walked by the, the seaside in the early morning as the tide rolls in and you're a long ways away from the noise of everything around you in the world and you just can't help but appreciate the thundering force of the turf slamming against the seashore? The voice of Christ is like that of many waters. We're told he holds the stars in his right hand, which we know are the angels, which are the pastors of the churches. Verse 16, how about that? It says that out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. Remember I talked to you about Revelation and his message being a sword. Christ and his authority is the hope of the believer. And... Uh, a two-edged sword because on the one hand it speaks of his almightiness and of his power to accomplish all that he said he will do but on the other it swings the other way he's the confronter of his church he comes to the church to call it to repentance to call it away from its immorality its decadence its pride its hard-heartedness its sins And then finally, Christ's face was like the sun shining in its strength. John couldn't look directly into the face of Christ because of its glorious luminosity. All of this now is to be applied to the church because it says in verse 13, John sees him walking in the middle of the lampstands and the final testimony about Christ as he's coming again. Verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those whom he has pierced. And so, people of God, this is a sevenfold testimony. Christ is glorious in being. Christ is glorious in position. Christ is glorious in grace. Christ is glorious in authority. Christ is glorious in appearance. Christ is glorious in presence. Christ is glorious in coming again. This is... The point at which I bring back in what I said at the start. As John takes all of this in in verse 17, 
He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. It's really encouraging to speak and to think about the comfort of Jesus Christ. Nothing makes the face light up more than to speak about Jesus as the great shepherd. Christ is spoken of here in his glory to console the church, to tell the church that things don't look like they appear. Christ is reigning in authority and power and glory. He will accomplish all his holy will. We don't have to fear. But you know, this image strikes us because John, having seen this glorious image of Christ, was terrified by it. Think back to um, the last night of Christ and His humility. John chapter 13. We are told there, that there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. The apostles John last experience of Christ was laying upon his chest. And as he sees him now some 70 years later in glory, he falls on his face like a dead man. You see, the point of it all is we head now into chapter 2 and chapter 3 and the letters to the seven churches is the glory of Christ is a message of comfort, but it's also a call to confrontation. No one can look this Christ in the eyes and listen to what he has to say about the church in chapters 2 and 3 and just shrug their shoulders in indifference. And think it will be okay. The point of this image leading as it is up to the letters. Is to put us in the very same posture of humility as John was. And to say Christ help me be teachable. Give me a repentant heart. Open my ears to hear. Make me be receptive. Because if we don't hear it that way, the Christ who displays himself in comfort will not just be the Christ who comes to confront. He will also be the Christ who comes to afflict. And so... As we end our exposition of the introduction, we pray, Sovereign Christ, give us hearing ears and a receptive heart. Father, 